Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Philosophical Disquisitions. It's been a while since the last episode, but we're back today with a bang because we're going to be talking about a topic which I've really wanted to cover on the podcast for quite some time, which is the impact of the social credit system that they've adopted in China on important political and social values, and also not just the Chinese social credit system, but also the, you know, the broader impact of this type of rating and data collection of citizens around the world. And to discuss this topic, I'm joined by Vessel Reyers. Vessel is uh, currently a postdoctoral research associate at the European University Institute. He's working on an ERC project called Blockchain Gov, which looks into the legal and ethical impacts of distributed governance. And his research focuses on the philosophy and ethics of technology, most notably on the development of a critical hermeneutical approach to technology and the investigation of the role of emerging technologies in the shaping of citizenship in the 21st century. And that is very much the theme of the conversation that we have in this interview. Vessel completed his PhD at Dublin City University, and he recently published a book called Narrative and Technology Ethics, which he co-authored with Mark Kugelberg, who was a former guest in this podcast as well, way back in episode 21. Vessel has published a bunch of articles in peer-reviewed journals, including philosophy and technology, science and engineering ethics, and so on. And he was an excellent guide, I think, to this thorny and interesting question around the impact of social credit systems. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the interview that I had with Vessel. Okay, so Vessel, today we're going to talk about uh, the ethics and politics of social credit systems, uh, with a particular focus on the Chinese social credit system and how it is or is not reshaping the ideal of citizenship. So look, this is a topic that has long fascinated me and I'm sure many others since I first read reports about the Chinese social credit system and the way in which it uses data to kind of rate, score, and ultimately punish certain antisocial behaviors. I've wondered in particular what this does to our sense of self, authenticity, freedom of choice, and so forth. Is this an effective way of enforcing social norms, or is it just a tool for authoritarian governments to further suppress the freedom and creative creativity of their citizenry? Now, of course, the, the Chinese system is much reported on in the West and probably much misunderstood, too. So I'm hoping we can clear up some of the potential misunderstandings about it and explore the deeper philosophical questions that arise from its deployment. And I should say as well at the outset, that this conversation is obviously not just about China. This is a conversation about this form of technological governance or behavioral management in general and what its implications might be. So let's just start with the basic question here. I mean, what, what would you define as a social credit system? Um, how do you characterize that, that concept? Is it a combination of surveillance, scoring, and some kind of technologically mediated punishment or reward? Or is there more to it than that? Yeah, thanks for the question, uh, John. And, and first of all, also, thank you for inviting me to, to the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm quite a, uh, a fan of listening to it. Um, but to, to indeed jump into the definition question that right away, I think actually the authoritative definition of social credit uh, or social credit systems is still kind of outstanding. And I'm not sure how much we should invest in like getting to some kind of definition. 
I mean, maybe responding to the question in some kind of Heideggerian way, um, I think the characterization of social credit systems in, term of, in terms of technologies used to enable them is correct in one way, but in essence, um, what they do cannot really be described in technological terms. And what I maybe mean with that is that we should maybe not talk about these technologies themselves directly, but more about the kind of mode of organization that social credit systems represent. And this mode of organization is by some authors kind of characterized as the rule by reputation or the rule by trust. And of course, this, these kind of characterizations already in, include assumptions, for example, about what trust really means. Um, maybe to lean on some kind of authors that have tried to uh, come up with a definition, like for example, in Kevin Werbach, uh, in a recent paper has said that social credit is an approach that seeks to organize society more tightly around data, feedback mechanisms and enforcement systems. And also that it uh, potentially applies uh, to everyone, everything and every action aimed toward not only economic welfare and legal ob uh, obedience, but also, also social harmony. And I think the second point also strikes uh, okay, some important aspect of it. Um, but of course, we kind of talk about one specific in instantiation of social credit system, namely the one in China, first of all. And in China, there is this kind of overarching term, which we will talk about more maybe uh, later in the conversation, of social management, which comes from cybernetics and systems thinking. And mm, taking that term kind of as a leading thread, I think, my take on social credit systems um, is that it are systems that aim at that, that aim at reducing uncertainty, and they do so by leveraging a person's or an individual's uh, quantified behavioral history. And maybe from a systems perspective, each individual citizen is a source of uncertainty that needs to be managed somehow. And knowing a citizen's dispositions can reduce this uncertainty and make it possible for a system to adapt to you know potential behaviors. Um, and it therefore takes kind of measurable behaviors as proxies for a quantified notion of the self and that this, this we usually call a reputation and intervenes accordingly, accordingly like on the micro level. Um, so what maybe makes social credit systems kind of unique as a mode of governance in that sense is that they rely on this quantified metric um, of the individual as a central data point and, and that's um, that makes it like a specific case that is interesting to study. Yeah, okay, so there's, there's a lot in that, and I think we'll come back to some of those themes as we develop this, this conversation. I mean, let, let's just go with the Chinese example for now, since that's the one that's often discussed. And one of the things that I know you've done in your work is kind of comparing the, the Chinese social credit system with variations that are similar in the West. But let's start with China and what is understood by the social credit system there. Where so there's two questions I'm interested in here. Like where where has this system come from? What's the what's the origin of it? What's the what's the kind of intellectual or policy rationale for it? Would be my my first question, I suppose. And then how does it manifest itself in the in modern China? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, maybe to start from like a slogan that is often mentioned. Um, by the Communist Party when they talk about the social credit system. It, the slogan is, trust breaking in one place, restrictions everywhere. I think that kind of captures a bit already what it wants to do. And a, a central um, document that is often mentioned when talking about uh, the social credit system is the 2014 
planning outline, the document you will see across scholarship on this topic. And the planning outline characterizes the social credit system like in the following way. Uh, its inherent requirements are establishing the idea of a sincerity culture and promoting honesty and traditional virtues. It uses encouragement for trustworthiness and constraints against untrustworthiness as incentive mechanisms, and its objective is raising the sincerity, consciousness, and credit levels of the entire society. So as you can imagine, that's quite a broad characterization of what it might actually do, the social credit system in China. And you also see in the development that there's many different philosophies and schools of thoughts that actually contribute to it. So maybe to first go a bit into the history, um, yeah. well, actually in China, there's actually, in any case, quite a long history of the keeping of personal files for governments, governance. Uh, this already happened in kind of imperial times, but in communist times, there, there's this development of the Dangang system. Um, which are kind of real folders or real files, more like DDR style, uh, which all, with all kinds of stuff on individuals, which were kept secret, but that had quite some important uh, influence on people's lives. So they could in, impact uh, one's professional prospects, one's kind of um, whether one could, for example, be a member of the, the Communist Party and those kind of things. Um, and more recently, this idea of the Dang'ang was um, transformed in the idea of morality files uh, that would be used for urban self-management. And this development kind of runs in parallel with another development, which is um, comes more from the commercial sector. So actually already in the early 1990s, there was a woman called Huang Wenjun, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, um, who is considered seated like the first person in the construction of social of the social credit system, and she was a businesswoman and she had like trouble um, with uh, counterfeits that put, were putting her business at risk at home, and she traveled to the United States uh, where she met with Americans and discussed like the role of credit management um, in order to promote trustworthiness in businesses in the United States. And of course, we are quite aware with credit systems like FICO. Um, and this idea was kind of transported back to um, back to China. Um, and later in the 90s, so in 1999, there was a leading researcher, Lin Junjui, um, a researcher from Beijing, um, who took this idea and put it into like the first form of what we now know as uh, the social credit system. And this was initially actually really focused on financial trustworthiness. So the idea that um, China was in need, because at the time, like the, the Chinese economy was severely lacking payment systems, credit systems, and all that had to be kind of built from the ground up. Um, so it had a very financial ring at first, but then it also became kind of popular among in the in the Communist Party. So in January 2001, Jiang Zemin, who was the general secretary of the Communist Party, uh, proposed kind of a new doctrinal concept, which is like governing by morality or virtue. It's kind of 
difficult to to get to the right translation with with these these kind of terms. Um, and he kind of mentioned the social credit system for the first time in 2002. And the kind of change it under, underwent mostly is that it was extended from being very similar to uh, a Western credit system like FICO and Schufa in Germany, for example, um, being extended towards the sphere of morality. So it got quite an ideological ring. Um, and one could say that it's kind of influenced by three different schools of thought that also compete with one another in the development of the system. So one of them is more moral or ideological, ideological where it's about a degree kind of a establishing a degree of credibility of individuals. Um, on the other hand, there's also uh, a focus on legal compliance, which actually in the rollout of the system maybe may, may have been become its main focus. So using it as a tool to ensure that companies and individuals act in accordance with the law. And then finally, there's also the idea of a degree of commitment so that, there, that the social credit system establishes whether or not somebody can be is committed to certain economical um, agreements. Um, so yeah, and, and, but most importantly, I think there is an interesting resonance in this this whole developmental process between finance and morality. That's maybe what sets it apart from the development of credit systems uh, in the West. Yeah, I mean, so that, I, mean, I guess that's it. It's an important point, and um, we we probably explore the, the similarities and dissimilarities between the Chinese system and the Western systems. But I, I, that story is interesting insofar as uh, it suggests a kind of Western influence initially in in terms of financial credit rating systems and trustworthiness systems, and then that filtering out or spreading out into the broader management of social behavior. I suppose th that might be one thing to pick up on here for listeners to maybe paint a picture of how does the social credit system manifest itself in the lives of ordinary Chinese citizens now? I mean, like, what? so what happens if you if you don't pay your... I mean, the stories that I've heard are, you know, if you violate some local ordinances or codes or, you know, you don't pay your bus tickets or public transport fees, you get get prevented from traveling or you get your rights to access travel prevented. I mean, like, are there, are there other examples you can point to or illustrations that show how pervasive it has become, if it has become pervasive? Um, yes, I think that that's a good question. Maybe before we go into that question, it, it would be good to kind of sketch how the system itself is actually implemented, because that kind of points uh, towards like where it is has actually has some teeth and where it doesn't have teeth. But maybe more generally, I could say um, that there has been some studies done on the kind of support uh, amongst the population towards uh, social credit systems. Uh, so for example, Kenia Kostka at the Fine Universität in Berlin has done a study uh, where she tried to see whether the, the Chinese population is kind of supportive of the social credit system, even knowledgeable of it. Um, and her conclusions were that actually there is quite some support of the social credit system amongst especially kind of the middle class, uh, more wealthy uh, parts of the Chinese population. But of course, these kind of studies also have their own methodological issues. And it might also be said that some other uh, experts say that 
um, most Chinese citizens are actually quite unaware of the system's existence and will mostly be confronted with it in form of its many instantiations. So that kind of depends, for example, also on which locality you live. In some localities, there are these kind of extensive pilot studies, um, which means that there you will really feel what's going on. Uh, whereas across the country, most people will not really be confronted with the social credit system unless it kind of unless you end up, for example, on a blacklist or a red list, uh, which does have consequences. So maybe to go into that um, more the broad kind of question of implementation of the system, um, it's quite interesting, I think, that contrary to what most people think, I think, about the, the kind of the role of the Chinese state and the extent to which um, policies are very centralized, the system has been implemented in a quite decentralized manner, and some people have even called this kind of a, a guerrilla governance mode of, of implementation, where uh, localities and, for example, municipalities really got a free card in like developing a system in, in the way that they found most suitable. And that had to also to do with a system of punishment and reward in, within the, the, the Communist Party, where, for example, some of these entrepreneurial local uh, officials um, had the incentive to build their own social credit system in order to go up the ranks in the Communist Party. Um, but I think more broadly speaking, one could say that the social credit system, first of all, maybe that's a kind of a bit of a, a misconception that people often have. It is not issuing like general citizen scores, at least not yet. Uh, I think often when we think when we hear about the social credit system, the initial idea that we have is that every citizen gets kind of a numerical score, and that numerical score determines everything. That's absolutely not the case, at least not at the moment. Um, and that's why I think it's it makes sense to look at the system from kind of three different perspectives, because there are three um, spheres, so to say, in which it is being developed. And the one that you just mentioned, is mostly like the national system. And the national system relies on three different aspects. So one of them is that there is a data sharing uh, initiative, uh, which, which is kind of uh, arranged around uh, memoranda of understanding between different agencies, uh, where the idea is that different, uh, that, that credit information, social credit information, is accessible throughout the Chinese government. Um, then there's also the idea that every uh, Chinese citizen should actually get an ID, so that you have a data point in the system. So these like social credit IDs. Um, and then there is the joint punishment system, which consists of blacklists and red lists. Um, and this goes back to the initial slogan that I that I mentioned, which is uh, breaking trustworthiness in one place, restrictions everywhere. Um, which means that if you got if you get on a specific blacklist, that can have ripple out consequences throughout um, your life as a citizen. And that, that's where where, for example, your your examples of restrictions to to buying train tickets and 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 uh, domestic plane tickets comes from. Um, th there have been be cases where if you ended up on the, the blacklist of the People's Court, which is the most important blacklist, uh, which 
or which you get if you don't follow up on court rulings, uh, then indeed there are restrictions on consumption. Um, uh, and also this, this national system also has a shaming aspect. Um, so the idea is that it's not only that you are restricted in your consumption, but also that people know, for example, that you are on a blacklist. Um, I mean, an interesting instantiation of this, of this is um, the, the idea of a, a map on WeChat, which is called the Laulai map. So it's kind of a Google map where you can see people move around or where you, get, where you can get indications. And um, Laulai means willful defaulter. So once somebody on a blacklist comes in, in your vicinity, so to say, then you get kind of a notification. Um, so that's kind of a national system. Sorry, can you, can you just go, go to that? I mean, so if I, like how, what kind of information is presented to me on that? Is it, um, is it kind of anonymized that I just know that there's somebody in my vicinity who's on the blacklist or do I actually, am I actually able to identify them and say, oh yeah, it's this person is on the blacklist or I will know if I interact with them that they are on the blacklist? Well, generally speaking, there is a naming and shaming policy. So that means that actually people are revealed as who they are. There, there's no, uh, there seems to be at many cases, no real concern for individual privacy when it comes to, to the shaming, uh, which also makes sense. In a, like, because but I mean, but how is it, how is it revealed? So, I mean, like, you know, in, in Ireland, they publish every year a list of people who've defaulted on tax or entered into a... Uh, some agreement with the revenue authorities for non-payment of tax. It's it's a publicly available list that you can look up. Yeah. Uh, is it something similar to that? That it's it, there's data out there that I can look up a list of people who are on the blacklist, uh, or is it is it presented in a more kind of immediate fashion, as in on an app on a phone that I can say, oh, this is this person who's on the blacklist. Yeah, again, there's not one answer to that, I think, because there's a, like, in line with this guerrilla government, uh, governance, I have heard many, many different ways in which it's been done. Like, there's displays on public spaces where people's faces and names are kind of displayed as, look, these people are on blacklist. There are also, like, very low-tech examples where, like, in villages, there are, like, posters, you know, of, like, the exemplary citizens and the non-exemplary citizens. So I'm not sure whether there's one example, one true answer to that it's, it's still like also very much in flux i suppose yeah okay fair enough i don't i'm just thinking and this is something we'll come back to in a moment but that you know there are other examples of this also in in the west or in my home country you know lists of sexual offenders are publicly available or publicly accessible but um i wanted to talk about uh i kind of interrupted you in the middle of discussing these three different variations in the system so you talked about the national system there what were, what were the other two examples you're going to talk about so the other two are um the local pilots first of all and the other one are the commercial initiative so the local pilots come from this uh, idea that the, that the national government incentivized uh, municipalities municipalities mostly or regions to build their own kind of uh, social credit systems. Um, and that this had led to kind of quite wide variety of systems with different ranking methods, uh, different scores. Here you also find these kind of point scores um, that are tied to certain catalogs of good and bad deeds. I think one of the most famous ones is, uh, is uh, developed in the city of Hongcheng. Uh, where you really have every citizen gets like a thousand point score and a A to D kind of grading. 
um, and offenses can be as kind of low key as like throwing away cigarette butts. Um, but I've also heard examples of where the the, the, the worst exa- the worst offense one could make is to um, take too much space on a graveyard for uh, if, if one buries one family one's family member that would be a, a grave offense uh, to the public apparently and then you get huge reduction yeah. in scores okay. yeah and um, and these are then related also to local kind of incentive schemes so people would get uh, easier access to public services. If they are if they are exemplary citizens, so so if you have a high score, but you're also banned from certain services if you have a low score, that is unlocally kind of dependent. Um, so in that sense, there's a very huge decentralized network of different social credit initiatives. And what also has to be said about the local level is that it's not always kind of high tech as people might expect, but actually can be very low tech. Um, maybe later I can also go into this idea of virtue banks, but. Um, Sometimes there are grid managers, so people actually walking around in neighborhoods uh, trying to figure out who did a good deed and who did a bad deed, like pen and paper style. Whereas in, in some cities like Shenzhen, as, man, as one might expect, this is like the Silicon Valley of, of China, um, there is quite some use of high-tech uh, tools like facial recognition that, are, that is blended in with the use of social credit system. Um, so that, that that is kind of that illustrates what happens at the at the at the local level. Then there's also the commercial level. Even though the commercial level is different than what we are familiar with, I think in 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 the West, uh, in the sense that the government and the, there's kind of a blurred line a bit between these huge internet corporations in China and and the Chinese government. Like there's there's there are much more ties between the two. Um, but there was also this initiative by the government to say like okay we want these social these these big internet companies to also develop uh, credit scores or social credit scores um, and maybe the most famous one is sesame credit uh, where you even have this kind of display where you see you know you hire a low score in a very kind of like black mirror style that we probably will also get back to later um, and there you have a whole range of perks and um, like also kind of punishments, uh, more in the commercial sphere uh, assigned to, to people. Um, so that's kind of more of a kind of consumer score, the, the, the Sesame credit in that sense. Um, but I have to say that this, these kind of initiatives, these, these commercial initiatives have eventually led to the creation of what's called Baihang credit. And Baihang credit, as far as I understand, is uh, meant to be kind of the overarching national credit, social credit rating agency, which is then mostly con- controlled again by the government. So eventually these social, these commercial initiatives feed back into the, the national system. Yeah, I mean, th- so this kind of raises then uh, the, the question that might be central to some of your investigations and what one of the things I'm interested in as well is the comparison between what's happening in China and what is happening or has already happened in, in Western countries. So this is a theme that's come up in previous episodes of this podcast uh, in relation to facial recognition in particular, that there's a, a tendency to paint China as somehow exceptional or unusual or like the the bogeyman when it comes to these technologies. But of course, we use 
variations on social credit systems, technologically mediated social credit systems, or low-tech social credit systems in the the West as well. You know, there are consumer cre- uh, consumer schemes with different companies. You know, point systems that reward customers in different uh, different stores, uh, grocery stores, or other shopping chains. There are uh, credit rating systems for banks and financial institutions. There are, you know, metric, metricized reward schemes associated with different employers. In a sense, as an academic, uh, my output is quantified and points and scores are attached to it. And that is somehow a measure of my ability as a as an employee and can be factored into decisions about the future of my employment, where they get promoted and so forth. So, I mean, how exceptional is China or are we just doing the same kinds of things in a more, maybe a more fragmented and less integrated way? I think both are true. I think that China is exceptional. We can we can come back to that later uh, as to why exactly that is the case. Um, I think the Chinese, yeah. So that so I, I would say that the Chinese initiative is exceptional, but the logic behind it. So the type of governance that we just talked that we talked about at the beginning. You're right that we can actually find in in kind of this this dispersed fashion um, throughout Western societies as well, and I think that actually that is increasing with a with a rapid pace. There are lots of initiatives for this. Um, I think indeed what you already mentioned that the most prevalent initiatives happen at the commercial level. So. We know FICO, we know Shufa, and these these scores they use. Of course, they're like the idea is that they are limited to the financial sphere, but it is hard to say where finance stops and kind of social life begins. And also, the, the indicators that they use these kind of systems are more and more blended with our social lives. Like, um, like some some credit scores can actually use, for example, social media information. Um, and also in the commercial sector, we see these rating mechanisms, as you also mentioned, uh, especially in the sharing economy, where uh, companies like like Airbnb and and Uber are using these rating mechanisms to not only rate their, um, uh, for example, the taxi drivers that that um, drive Uber cars, but also this kind of two-way reputation. Uh, management is more and more i think prevalent where also as a consumer you get a score in order to to kind of indicate whether you are trustworthy not only financially speaking but also in in terms of of etiquette where you get much more in in the realm of morality already um and at the but i mean that's the commercial side but indeed also like on the public side there's also lots of initiatives um with regard that we could kind of link to social credit in some way or another. So uh, in Western societies, we do, for example, find point-based immigration systems where there is a distinction made between immigrants based on information about their qualities, about their qualifications. Um, This is, of course, also linked to this idea of citizen tests where you have to have a score in order to become a national of a certain country. but also within countries, their numerical scores or, or social credit, so to say, is sometimes used. For example, in Israel, there is a 
uh, a quality index or GABA for military personnel, where military personnel gets assigned to the numerical score. And like globally speaking, there are quite some examples of blacklists, um, for example, with regards to traveling that, uh, at, at international airports where like certain travelers get, uh, get a ban based on, based on their past behavior. Um, and even like going back to this idea of guerrilla governance on local on the local level, there are also some interesting initiatives. Uh, we had a, a conference last year in Berlin where somebody from the Portuguese city uh, Cascais came to give a, a presentation about their use of uh, well, they had like a partnership with a company called Innowave, and um, they implemented what they called city points and city points. Uh, well, in a way, in a way, describes it in the following way um, as a form of gamification, and they say gamification has proved to be a powerful motivator, allowing organizations and governments to promote desirable behaviors in their employees and citizens. Uh, so, Engage, which is this this, um, this product that it offers by Innovave, is a cloud-based gamification platform that is widely used and has in-depth customization features. Uh, and it's successful in inculcating good behaviors through rewards and meaningful communication, a community, community engagement. So in practice, that means that in, in Cascais, they did this test, and I think the test eventually didn't work out that well, that people could uh, do some good deeds for their community and in, in reward or in exchange for those good deeds, they would get some kind of credit, which they then could spend locally in terms of, uh, of government services. So I think you're right that indeed there is a diffused set of initiatives um, in Western societies that are quite similar. The, the logic, the underlying logic is, is quite similar to what we actually observe in China. Yeah, and look, we'll come back to where you think China might be exceptional in a moment. But this does prompt for me a more general reflection. You started this conversation by saying that you know maybe we shouldn't think about the social credit system as something that is technologically mediated but think of it as a certain mode of social organization or governance and you mentioned in particular it's kind of a trust based and reputation based form of social governance but i suppose the the thing that that recalls for me is that pretty much all human societies are trust based or reputation based or engage in a trust based or reputation based form of social governance i mean one of the things i have been reading about recently is you know the origins of human moral systems and the common theory amongst a lot of anthropologists and evolutionary biologists is that it began in some kind of you know hunter gatherer tribes where your social reputation was probably the most crucial feature about you and determined a lot of your success and opportunities in life so we used you know gossip and sharing of information to generate maybe informal measures of social reputation. What seems to be distinctive nowadays, if there is anything that's distinctive, is that it's just much more formalized. Again, it's quantified, metricized. And again, maybe the use of technology to support the collation and sharing of information that goes into this formalized social score. That, that, that seems to me to what sep separates it. What do you think of that idea? I think the idea is largely correct, actually. Um, I do think that reputation and honor has played an important role in the governance of societies throughout human history. I think that's, that's, that's a very important point. 
Um, the one thing I would, I mean, this is, as you say, there's also some researchers that, that kind of exemplify this. I think uh, Sam Harris kind of has this idea that this reciprocal, like uh, tit for tat type of uh, morality is kind of basic. Um, I would agree with that. I, there's just three points of nuance I would like to make in that sense. I mean, uh, Aristotle kind of already argued that there are three types of, of human life, one based on pleasure, one based on honor, and one based on virtue. Um, and that what it mainly indicates, I think, is that yes, indeed, honor is one of those mechanisms of morality, but it's not the only one. Um, and when, when it comes to, to this kind of idea of a paradigm shift or the shift from these kind of informal hunter-gatherers reputation mechanisms to what we have now in China as a, as a, like a technologically mediated system, I think the paradigm shift is maybe as big as from oral language to, to, to kind of written language that we should not underestimate, I think, um, what formalization and quantification does to the very idea of honor and reputation. That's, you know, whether we can actually still see a continuity or, or also have to think in terms of discontinuity. Um, I mean, one thing that, that definitely has happened in that sense is that reputation has kind of moved from the intangible to the tangible realm. So even though reputation might have been a thing in hunter-gatherer societies, um, it was kind of still kind of an intangible thing. Like, I mean, I, I come from a small village myself. I know kind of how it fe what it feels like uh, to have a certain reputation, but it's, it's far from being something visible, quantified, tangible that, that you kind of carry around with you. Uh, and that's that's quite a, a change, I think, that is being um, represented by the kind of this rise of social credit systems. And I think, lastly, maybe another nuance is that there has also throughout history, I think, been a, kind of a, a push against the blurring between morality and reputation. I think that. I mean, quite interestingly, Hannah Arendt in the human condition kind of describes how early Christians uh, were strongly opposed to the idea, for example, that good deeds uh, performed in the public sphere could tell us anything about the goodness of a person. So in, in, in early Christianity, there was kind of a conflict between uh, the idea that you could build morality just based on reciprocity, like visible reciprocity, or that it's actually needs kind of to be hidden from from view so that that to, to be a good person you cannot actually um, like sell your own qualities towards the community and 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 these kind of discussions you also find in, interestingly enough in in um, in Chinese ancient Chinese philosophy too so um, yeah like Confucian thinkers like Mencius have also argued against the idea um, that one can base one's kind of moral standing on an assessment of merits and demerits. So, like those nuances, I would like to add because I think that's uh, those are like important uh, kind of counter arguments against the idea that yes, social reputation is an important mechanism in human societies, but it's not the only one and. Um, it's and therefore kind of social credit systems do represent some kind of difference. Yes, I mean, I, like, I, I take the points that you made there about the kind of three nuances, and I like that, and because it 
it helps to move us beyond a certain theme that's uh, emerged in some of these podcasts that I've done about whether technology poses new threats or challenges or ethical dilemmas or not. Or um, And I think the analogy you have, the transition from oral culture to written culture is, is a useful one. But you wanted to talk a little bit about some historical analogs or examples to social credit systems, particularly in, I think you said, religious communities. So maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think religion or like religious practices have show us kind of some interesting parallels with at least the imaginary of social credit. So uh, I just wanted to pick out two examples. One of them is like a Western example. One of them is an, a Chinese example. So in, in, um, in Christianity, uh, from the 10th century onwards, um, there was quite some innovation going on. And this innovation uh, culminated in this idea of indulgences. Um, I think many Christians are familiar with this idea and they know that uh, they were kind of the breaking point uh, in, the, in the Reformation. So when, when uh, Martin Luther wrote his, his 95 theses, um, he wrote it about indulgences. And what are indulgences? Um, they're basically a way, practices that allow Christian believers to, um, to kind of repair their balance in the so-called treasury of merits um, uh, that is imagined to be part of the, the otherworldly realm. Um, so to, to repair the balance, balance of, of kind of good deeds and, and sins um, in order to reduce punishment in purgatory. And purgatory is kind of this intermediary state between oral life and the, and the afterlife. Um, and this doctrinal kind of innovation in, in Catholicism has, has, has had quite some social impact. So it, it, it became actually popular at the time of the Crusades when the, the Pope gave like a plenary indulgence towards all, everybody who was going to fight the, Saras, the Saracens, or I'm not sure, um, to fight them. And that gave them, so to say, the idea that they're fate in afterlife would be better off, so to say. And um, later on, these kind of practices developed into these notorious um, problematic kind of forms of corruption where priests would be paid in order to give indulgences to, uh, to believers, but also to their like dead uh, family members in order to kind of get them out of purgatory and, and, and show them the way into heaven. Um, so that's kind of one interest, and I think that kind of logic of a mer like a treasury of merits and demerits, this kind of ledger where um, you, your good and your bad deeds end up in having some kind of effect, in this case on the afterlife, is in some senses reflects this kind of logic of social credit, where it's your bad, good and bad deeds that, that make you end up on a black or a red list. Yeah, so, so there's another example in, in China, which um, is very nicely captured by a book by Cynthia Joan Brockham called The Ledgers of Merit and Demerit. And it's about a practice that kind of emerged around the 10th century from a mixture of different influences like Taoism, Confucianism and, and Buddhism um, of keeping track in a kind of meticulous manner of good and bad deeds. 
and in, in that way to gain um, spiritual um, yeah, so fortune, uh, also mostly in the afterlife. And in the 16th, 17th century, there was a, um, a, a Chinese um, well, member of the Chinese elite, and he turned this into a method for self-help. So he, he wrote a book, I, I forgot the name actually of the book, uh, but it was something about like finding my good way in life, uh, where he basically described how keeping these these ledgers, these moral, moral ledgers, uh, would help him gain like material fortune in life. Um, and through his uh, his promotion of these practices, it became quite widely spread among amongst the Chinese elite to keep really these these little books of yeah to keep their own like moral bookkeepings of good and bad deeds and with the belief that it would actually influence their worldly successes. Um, so also there it kind of it shows this this kind of psychology maybe behind the power of of social credit. Yeah, I mean, there's, sorry, there's interesting parallels there with kind of modern psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy as well they encourage you to kind of keep track of your your daily successes and look at things that you've done for other people as being a way of kind of improving your general mental health and well-being uh, but mm -hmm. there's an interesting theme in in the examples that you've just given and also the kind of nuances that you put on my initial historical intervention which I think is worth just maybe underlining because I hadn't really thought about it in enough detail before, but there is this interesting or important shift from kind of honor or reputation-based moral cultures to maybe modern liberal and egalitarian cultures. This is an idea that other people have remarked upon and that our moral worth and moral standing in um, the modern liberal worldview is not supposed to be premised on what we do. It's a function of who we are as, as human beings. It's sort of natural and innate property and you get that in the you know u.s constitution the declaration of independence all men are created equal although obviously there were failures to live up to that ideal in in reality in america right but there is that kind of founding myth of liberalism let's say is that there's this fundamental moral equality between all people and an honor-based or social credit-based system kind of challenges that now that said i would say that like that idea, that modern idea of fundamental moral equality is, has always been somewhat under threat or under, undermined by other social practices. And there's always been some effort to kind of rank and race moral behaviors and moral worth of different citizens. But it's just an interesting observation. Now, look, we, we've talked to here a bit about the comparisons between the West and China and then also the historical comparisons with social credit systems. Nevertheless, you do maintain that there is something exceptional about the Chinese case and you, you mentioned that earlier on. So I'd like you to maybe explain what you think is exceptional about the, the modern Chinese case. Yes, I, I do think it's exceptional. And it's at the same time, it's still quite hard to put the finger on it. Um, so in that sense, we, we, we started out with basically some um, distinctions, more descriptive distinctions, perhaps. And I think the most important one is kind of maybe jumping out directly, um, even though it's maybe the least interesting one, is like there's a distinction with with regards to regime type. So we should never forget, I think, that in China, this is, the system is being implemented in an authoritarian context. And um, that sets it already apart from similar systems we might have in, in liberal democracies. 
Um, and it, the, it, this dimension kind of matters because it signals the likelihood of abuse of social credit systems. I mean, uh, I think we all are familiar with the example of uh, Xinjiang in, in, in China, where the Uyghurs are being prosecuted. I mean, the, the use of social credit system in this context is disputed. It's not really clear what it is being used in, in, in some kind of way, but it is clear that there are ratings for trustworthiness used in, in kind of the scheme of oppression. So that shows already that um, like the, the potential of abuse in an authoritarian context is, is of course very different than it is in, in liberal democracies. Um, but I mean, as I said, that's also maybe the least interesting distinction. Um, another distinction is that the Chinese system is unique in the sense that it is government-sponsored. I know that there have been ideas also in Western democracies, for example, the, the, the American or the candidate for the primaries of the Democratic Party, uh, Andrew Yang, he did actually propose a similar system for the United States, but so far there has not been any similar initiative. So because it's government-sponsored and based kind of on public-private partnerships, um, it, it changes the potential scope of the social credit system. And that brings me to the, to the following point. Um, this basis allows it to extend the scope from consumers or certain types of professions um, to society as a whole. And that's why we're only in China, I think it touches upon the category of citizenship. And that's also why we kind of, we, we found it interesting to approach the, the system from this angle of citizenship. Um, so in that sense, the, the Chinese system is the only one where there's a kind of all-encompassing system that can uh, rate citizens as such. Um, and therefore, it also has more of a moral kind of ring, which is also quite explicit in the, in the policy documents, where it's not only about kind of your skills as, for example, I mean, if you talk about an academic, you know, of course, we ranked we ranking academics, but you know how much you publish doesn't really tell anything about whether you're a good person. And I think this spillover into morality that's quite specific. Again, in the Chinese case. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. I, I was going to ask this question later, but I think it's probably appropriate to ask it now, because as you've highlighted, this as being one of the distinctive features of the Chinese case that it's it's not just rating and ranking us as consumers of a particular corporation or as users of Uber or as academics, it's ranking and rating us as citizens and it's explicitly a moralized ranking. And one of the mm -hmm. things that you've drawn out in one of the papers you've written with um, Liv Orgad or Liev Orgad, is that, I don't know mm -hmm. how to pronounce his name, I apologize, but uh, is this idea that there's a different conception or ideal of citizenship that's at play here? And in particular, you talk about it being an instrumentalizing and technical method of cultivating civic virtue amongst citizens. Uh, maybe you could explain that. Like, what, what is that ideal of citizenship and civic virtue that's at play here? And how does it differ from how we ordinarily, or sorry, how we in the West, let's say, conceive of civic virtue? Yes, indeed. We, we, we take civic virtue as the kind of like normative vantage point because it is so central to the social credit system it it it, it, it talks literally indeed about uh like this rule or governance by virtue and i think that that makes it quite quite unique and what i mean with um, so indeed to maybe go back a bit 
um, it is not. I don't think it's necessarily opposed to how we view civic virtue in the West. I don't think that's the case. Um, more pragmatically speaking, especially like as I said, like somebody like Andrew Yang actually proposed something like this in a Western context. Um, I think it's more that it is um, like controversial from a point uh, standpoint of theories in political philosophy. That's also, that's also like the standpoint that we take. Um, and that's not only the case, I think, for Western theories, even though that those are the only ones that we treat in the paper, but um, also, I think, from Chinese theories. And that's kind of maybe an interesting extension later. But um, what, what we kind of, what's at the background of this analysis is what we, is a kind of a typology of, civic virtue and, and, and ways in which um, different schools in philosophy disagree about specific aspects of civic virtue. And um, it's my point, like from my point of view, I think that two like major disagreements. On the one hand, um, it's about the kind of the conception of civic virtue or the, the maybe its structure, so to say. and. Here it is about whether civic virtue stands in relation to something external to the individual or internal. And I think that that's, for example, a distinction you find between liberal liberal scholars and communitarians like like somebody like McIntyre, where liberals would argue that civic virtue actually stands in relation to the well-being of the community, of the political community, whereas McIntyre argues that virtue is essentially uh, concerned with goods internal to practices of individuals. So that's why they are primarily related to the happiness of the individual. I think that's one distinction. The other distinction doesn't have to do so much with um, how civic virtue is conceived, but it has more to do with possible ways in which it is being cultivated. And that's like the technical aspect of it. Um, and I think that here the, the, the discussion is mostly about whether civic virtue is cultivated through standards. Uh, so kind of whether it's fast oriented, one could say, um, that, that allow for kind of conceptions of success and error, or whether kind of more in the, in the words of, um, uh, of Hannah Arendt, uh, civic virtue can only be exercised through acts that start something anew. So there is no possibility of kind of applying past standards to to assessing whether something is virtuous or not. Um, and I think those two distinctions help us um, kind of consider the, the, so the, the type of or the way in which civic virtue is being formed within uh, social credit systems. Because on the, on the one hand, it clearly um, it, it clearly has an instrumental conception of civic virtue insofar as um, it relates the qualities of the individual that are kind of being assessed through social credit systems to social harmony or the well-being of the political community. So there's no um, there's no aim of like happiness of the individual, but there's more an aim of social order, social harmony, um, like well-being of the of the collective. So that, that makes it kind of an instrumental conception, I think, of civic, civic virtue. And the, the mode of cultivation it, it proposes is clearly technical in the sense that it allows for uh, notions of success and error. So um, it kind of quite transparently, outli transparently outlines 
these catalogs of good deeds and bad deeds where citizens are quite aware of, you know, if I if I act according to this standard, I act correctly. If I act according to that standard or to, to that, um, uh, so they say, catalog of bad deeds, then I might end up on a blacklist. So in that sense, like this idea of civic morality, uh, civic virtue, um, lies close to this instrumental conception and this technical mode of cultivation. And I believe that that is kind of something that is not shared across any of the kind of schools of political philosophy that we have in the West, in a sense. So, so in that sense, I think it, it, it can be opposed from a, from a philosophical point of view. Uh, so one thing I'm interested in here is... Um... To what extent can we argue that, it, so as you mentioned, this this heavily kind of moralized language adopted in the, the the policy documents that set this out, and obviously these are translations, and I'm I'm assuming they're capturing the essence of the original text roughly in in concepts that we would understand or ways in which we would understand. But you know, some people would argue that there's maybe something almost anti-moral about it. If you're using so this kind of system of very close surveillance and punishment and coercion or reward to police our moral behavior, then that's like not really developing virtue or not really developing morality. I suppose I'm influenced here maybe by a kind of Kantian viewpoint that people have to kind of choose to do the right thing for themselves, to be trustworthy or to, to do good deeds out of their own volition rather than be essentially nudged or manipulated into it by this system of behavioral management. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that, I think that's where it, it, it touches upon this, uh, the question of freedom. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to say for that perspective. I think also even from an empirical perspective. So for example, in the nudging literature, there's a lot of... Um, talk about this idea of the crowding out effect so which basically means that if you nudge if you um, incentivize people to to act in a certain way then you crowd out their intrinsic motivation for for those those kind of actions um, and you know it says something about our freedom because once our motivations are extrinsically motivated it becomes kind of doubtful to say to what extent our actions are really still our own. Um, I mean, it's also kind of a tricky question. I mean, I, I, I kind of got quite some um, information from the paper that you wrote on um, freedom in an age of algocracy, uh, where you kind of talk about this notion of micro-domination, where it's this, this idea that there's arbitrary decisions are made uh, on small issues that have kind of severe effect in aggregate. I think that that is that kind of captures uh, the worry quite well. I think, um, and at the same time, there is still this open question because indeed there, like, we don't want to live in a world where um, our actions are kind of premeditated by a system that nudges us into one or the other direction. But I'm, I'm especially interested still in what sense of positive freedom is really being curtailed by that. Um, and that's, that's for me also quite still an open question because on, from some point of view, you could also say that social credit actually has some positive effects. Um, 
And there, there are actually quite some scholars who, who argue uh, for uh, some kind of social credit system in, in certain spheres of society. So um, there's, for example, a paper by Marcelo Thompson and Zhang Chin, and also from Jens van het Kloos and Maria Müller about um, social credit system for like distributive justice, so that it actually has some uh, uh, positive effects when um, applied in the right way. So I see that I'm, I'm kind of diverging quite a bit here, um, but that, that's okay. Yeah. You know, I think like I think you're on point. Like, I mean, I think that's. Yeah, I, I I can certainly see an argument to be made in favor of it that it's beneficial in some contexts. Uh, maybe there's there's a positive case to be made for it, but um, yeah, like I I guess the concern I have is that it is probably partly the crowding out concern that comes up in the in the nudging literature that if if your motivation or incentive for doing the right thing is so intimately tied to your social credit score and maybe your fear of losing out access to certain social services, then in what sense are you really doing the right thing? And I know this is a maybe a subtle distinction and it's the kind of distinction that only philosophers might care about and maybe most ordinary citizens don't care about it and most members of government policy making groups don't don't care about it. But it seems that there is something important to it to me if you have mm-hmm. if you have this this loss of your own ability to act upon the right reasons or to think about or conceptualize your own actions in terms of moral reasons for action rather than simply avoiding punishment and yeah, uh, the I, loss I of social service. Yeah. I definitely agree with, with, with what you say there. And uh, maybe one thing to add there is that I take a lot from Hannah Arendt where she talks about like that uh, these kind of distinct human activities and that one mode of human activity can be performed in the mode of another and thereby be dominated by this other mode of human activity. Because I think that um, what you just described is, is, is undesirable, but only undesirable in certain contexts. Like in some, way, some contexts, we are perfectly fine with, um, you know, being incentivized to do X or Y or Z. That's, um, so in that sense, I think social credit has its kind of sphere of, a, of it can be used in a certain sphere of human activity. But I think the big question is how do we delineate this sphere? So how do we avoid, for example, political political action as such to be crowded out by these kind of more instrumental activities of you know, laboring for the community, uh, in order to get your social credit score higher, you know, I think that's, and that's for me still an open question, but I think that that's a very important question to ask when we, when we face these kind of systems, like what sphere of activity should it actually be allowed to cover and which shouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, this kind of brings me to another question. It's just a, a brief point that I, I wanted to make or raise is, the the notion that living under a social credit system is, is unpleasant, and this is a theme that you get in a lot of science fiction. Uh, we meant you mentioned earlier on Black Mirror. It's a famous Black Mirror episode, Nosedive, which depicts a future American society that is governed by a a pervasive social credit system, which seems to be very much modeled on Instagram or something, where you know the goal is to 
present this certain view of yourself, which seems very inauthentic and very insincere. And people are constantly managing what they say and avoiding, you know, full, honest self-disclosure because they're so concerned about their social reputation. And it just seems Mm -hmm. to lead to this very superficial mode of social relations and a dishonest, insincere and disingenuous form of social relations. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of see this happening already to some extent on social media, right? Even without a formalized social credit system. And so I, I wonder, is, is that something we should be worried about with the deployment of social credit systems that it, it, it prevents an authentic mode of living? Yeah, my answer would be yes. Um, I think I think some caveat about like, because the, um, the first reaction of most scholars on the social credit system is to directly denounce the no-type comparison, which which they do for good reasons. Because, uh, like, um, it, it it like in Western societies, when you say the social credit system, then this is the direct comparison that's often made. Because nowadays, Black Mirror is such a widely consumed series. Um, but of course, there's also differences in that you know. In those side, people rate each other instead of that they are kind of being scored or rated by the state. Um, you know, there's there's this uh, Instagram-like corporation uh, ruling people's lives, whereas in um, in, in China it's, it's mostly state-led initiative. And in terms of aesthetics, there's also quite some differences. So there's there's quite some differences between these two systems. But I think you're right that what is eventually at stake is this notion of authenticity that's that's true um, and also what you described in terms of like um, for example this, this sense of moral anxiety and that's also interesting when you, when you go back to these historical examples of for example in the indulgences in the middle ages or these ledgers of merit and demerit one of the main effects that people describe of having these practices is indeed this sense of moral anxiety of being meticulous about every every step you take about like is this a good deed is this a bad deed like the idea that you know not having a, co- a full confession will will you know lead to 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 con- condemnation and on the other hand also what you kind of already indicate this idea of shaming that if you that um like if you don't play the game you, you turn into some kind of social outcast and that's also quite well uh i think captured by the nosedive uh, narrative. So in that sense, I think it's spot on that this question of authenticity and sorry, if I sorry. Could, if I could just jump back in because I think if I could rearticulate my concern, like one one of the one of the chief virtues I think of modern cosmopolitan liberal societies is the sense that, that there's diverse ways of life are possible and you can there's different ways of being a moral citizen or a virtuous citizen. Let's say I suppose mm-hmm. one of the fears I would have with a pervasive social credit system of any sort is that the whatever algorithm they use for calculating your social credit score, your your social virtue, is going to maybe encourage a kind of conformity that, and we lose that sense of diversity and cosmopolitanism as a result. Yeah, I think that's 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 correct. I think that's that's also that goes back to this idea that um, that genuine political action can be crowded out by uh, this kind of non-genuine laboring for one's social credit score um at the same time i think we should at, at the same time i think there's also like a movement in liberal democracies 
towards a better understanding of civic virtue. So, uh, especially with the recent um, uh, like debacle around Donald Trump and like controversies about uh, surrounding um, like speech on social media, I think there's also a growing realization that the liberal order does not is not capable of of uh, of functioning without some kind of sense of civic virtue. So um, I'd say that, like, what, what I think one of the failures of liberalism is that it kind of tries to exclude civic virtue from its from its um, from what it is interested in. I'm not sure whether that makes sense. Maybe I should re- no, repeat that. No, I, uh, I, think, I think the point, like the, the, the extent to which basic norms of virtue or tacit norms are responsible for holding together liberal democracies, that I think that's an important point. It's, it's something that's been aired, as you mentioned, quite a lot recently in relation to the the impact of Trump and polarization in the U.S. and the kind of the breakdown and stagnation of these liberal institutions of governance, the sense that liberal governments can't get things done, they can't manage things properly. Uh, that's mm-hmm. partly a function of the breakdown of civic virtue. I th- and I think that's that's a fair a fair comment. I, do, I mean, I'm conscious of the time, so I do, I do want to maybe move towards the end. I just had a couple of questions that I wanted to ask to, to wrap up on. Since we, we've touched now on some of these important kind of philosophical and moral questions, I, just, I want to know really what does the what does the future hold with respect to this technology? I mean, one thing that people are concerned about at the moment is this sense that COVID nineteen might be encouraging or incentivizing governments to a, to move towards a social credit system. Let's say uh, certainly that's uh, maybe it's not social credit per se, but certainly the um, there's a lot of moralization of behaviors around the pandemic let's say mm-hmm. and there's also maybe a move towards more surveillance and management of, of the citizenry in order to control the outbreak of pandemics and you see this in china and the way in which they've kind of leveraged their uh, governance system to deal quite successfully it appears from the outside with the pandemic uh, do you think there's a risk that the, or I don't want to necessarily phrase it, frame it as a risk because that depends on whether it's a good or bad thing, but do you think it's possible that the pandemic and, and the attempt to avoid future pandemics is going to encourage a shift towards a more social credit type governance? Yeah, in China, you do, you see this happening already. So there's like a recent paper by Rogier Kremers and Adam Knight about the use of uh, social credit systems in China to uh, to mitigate uh, the pandemic, and they see it, they say that it's being used in two kind of ways. One one way is to uh, tighten the system in terms of like virus related behaviors. So for example, people would get punished by driving in lanes that were reserved for ambulance personnel, or even now, they come back to this kind of governance guerrilla. There, there have been localities where I think the consumption of seals of cat meat, for example, be, was was kind of led to uh, to negative uh, credit scores. And at the same time, they also use a system. Um, they kind of lighten it up in some parts of the of the system, in the sense, like for example, when it came, came to uh, the economic credit ratings. Uh, people were, for example, like paying back loans 
like they could could take more time to pay back loans and those kind of things. So the system showed itself quite flexible to deal with um, with the pandemic. And at the same time, there were also quite some interesting kind of controversies. For example, one controversy was about um, kind of mission creep. So that uh, because it's such a flexible system, lots of things could be included. So so kind of local officials went wild and like including types of behavior that, that they could police, so to say. And um, I do think that you see similar, even though there's no social credit system, for example, in Europe, you do see similar indeed, similar discussions happening indeed. I think in Europe they, they have been discussing vaccination passports, for example, for getting uh, access to, to the southern countries to go on holiday. Um, and I also see this sense of moral anxiety quite present when it comes to, to COVID-19 management, where people indeed, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel it for myself, you know, when you see somebody without a, a mask in the supermarket, you, you start to kind of make all kind of moral assumptions about that person where maybe there's a perfectly valid reason. So in that sense that, yeah, the pandemic definitely uh, maybe encourages that those kinds of thinking whether it would imply social credit necessarily, I don't think so. Um, but in China, it, it is used. So if China is a success story, then it might be that other countries will kind of start to, to copy it as well. Yeah, and then maybe just the last question. Where do you think we're going from here? Do you see, do you see it likely that there'll be a, a wider deployment of Chinese-style social credit systems in the West? Or like what, does, what are the possible futures that we have to contend with here? Yeah, as a philosopher, I'm always very, very cautious about uh, saying anything about the future. <laughs> um, but I, there, there's some, some maybe interesting things to take into account. Um, so one thing I, I personally find quite interesting is uh, a parallel I saw between um, so the social credit system in China and what happened with the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal. Um, of course, they're very different contexts, but the interesting thing about, I think, this, the, the, the Cambridge Analytica methodology was that they used psychometric scores to, you, to target ads towards people, you know, in order to reduce uncertainty about whether they would go to vote or not. And I think that's quite interesting because it, 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 it is almost a more sophisticated form of social credit management because it directly kind of um, gains something from this kind of psychometrics, that the science behind psychometrics, which you don't find yet in China. In China, in a way, the system is quite clunky yet still, you know, it's still quite based on like these catalogs of behaviors and, and it, like it doesn't really come close to the psyche of the individual, whereas with the Cambridge Analytica case, it does come quite close. And, you know, so, so one thing I would be interested in to see is how uh, psychometrics are going to be used more and more in these kind of social credits or social scoring mechanisms. That's one thing. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to predict when it will happen, but I think it's, it's interesting to see how that, how that will influence it. And of course, there's a whole range of technologies that are still, you know, in, in flux that might influence it, like sensing technologies, effective technologies, gen tech. But I think, you know, taking those into account will mostly lead to, to, to 
to speculations. There is a move by China to actually sell or to yeah to sell the system to other countries. So, for example, Venezuela has been interested in in um, adopting something like a social credit system as well. Um, so it might be that beyond the West, there, are, there there will be a move towards these systems, regardless of you know what 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 we think about it. Um, and then again, like to come back to this early example, there are also Western politicians like Andrew Yang who also see quite some some currency in the idea. So I mean, without speculating, I think that there is a possible future in which, uh, first of all, social credit systems are increasingly being used to govern societies, yes. And second, I would be very interested into the kind of the methods, the scientific methods behind it that are being used, like psychometric testing, uh, to get more and more close to the psyche of the individual. I think those are two developments that we should keep an eye on, at least. Okay, so something to keep an eye out for, eternal vigilance being the um, hallmark or important um, virtue in all liberal societies. So I'd just like to thank you for joining me for this conversation, Vessel. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on, uh, John. It was really a pleasure.